So our, our papers today um, are gathered under the title uh, Mathematical Expeditions in quite a neat sequence from the 16th to the 18th to 20th centuries. And what I want to begin by doing is to um, trespass a little, possibly trample a little, uh, on the territory of the other speakers uh, this afternoon, um, because there are very different senses of mathematical expeditions. So in 1919, um, the expedition that we'll be hearing about later and, the, and, and, and other ones too, were done with the purpose of testing the predictions uh, of Einstein's general theory of relativity. Uh, 18th century expeditions um, for example, those to measure a degree of the meridian, um, such as that of La Condamine and Bouguer to, to Peru, and the other one that went to Lapland, were intended to resolve um, the controverted question of the, the figure of the Earth, uh, the shape of the Earth, whether the Earth was squashed at the poles um, or at the equator. And at issue there were competing uh, predictions from uh, Newtonian and uh, Cartesian theories. Uh, of, of, of gravity and, and, uh, and the Earth's shape. So those 18th and 20th century expeditions had as their principal purpose an effort to tackle a, a theoretically motivated question using precise measurement. Other expeditions in the 18th century were not necessarily intended to adjudicate between competing theories, but nevertheless had as their principal stated purpose the accomplishment of new measurements and the acquisition of new knowledge. So Cook's first voyage famously was publicly uh, stated to be uh, to go and observe the transit of Venus in the Pacific and thereby better determine the distance between the sun and the earth. Now if we come into the 16th century, then Expeditions then were not undertaken for the principal sake of mathematics or of science. The, the, the driving imperatives were things like trade, plunder, and, and settlement. So that's not, um, you might think, such a promising environment to be thinking about mathematical uh, expeditions. But it doesn't mean that we need to entirely uh, relinquish that term, mathematical expeditions because through the still novel claim that mathematics should transform the emerging practice of oceanic navigation, mathematical expeditions did have a contemporary 16th century meaning. And to think, what did that mean in practice? It's, it's good to go to the very beginning of the 16th century uh, and just take briefly the example, uh, not from England, as I'll be coming on to, but from Spain, um, from the nomination of Amerigo Vespucci, uh, after whom America is, is named, uh, Vespucci's commission as Spain's pilot major, uh, the, the chief royal uh, pilot in 1508. And that commission required him to examine pilots for their navigational proficiency particularly in the use of the quadrant and the astrolabe. But he also had responsibility for the assembly, for the construction of what was called the Padron Real, which was the, the master chart, the master sea chart, whose role was to accumulate the observations of mariners, the diverse charts that are already being constructed of different parts of the world, and to resolve any differences that there were between charts, 
in order to make the one template that could be used to generate reliable copy charts that would give navigators confidence that they could um, safely reach parts of the world knowing that they were building on a kind of legacy and accumulation of knowledge and experience. So with Vespucci, he was named by the Crown, so this is a state appointment. Um, it becomes an institutional commission, uh, the Casa de la Contratación in, in Seville. So we have a place and we have a person and we have a, a set of responsibilities. And for most of what I'll be saying, I will focus on those two parts of Vespucci's role, um, testing um, pilots for their knowledge, their understanding, their expertise in the use of instruments, in his case, the quadrant and the astrolabe, and also in this cartographic role, um, assembling, in his case, the, the Padron uh, Real. So those will be the, the charts, maps, and instruments are going to be my main focus, and that is absolutely in the 16th century what mathematics is seen to be about. You know, now we have, a, uh, typically since the 19th century, the idea of mathematics as being uh, the queen of the sciences, the most abstract of the sciences, in the 16th century, mathematics is typically seen as being a very hands-on, almost mechanical, uh, lower status uh, subject, and instruments and charts are absolutely part of that. So having set out um, that contemporary 16th century vision of what mathematics is, the kind of things that we can look to under the heading of mathematical expeditions, um, I just want to give you a little heads up that at the very end, I will come back to that question of, of theory in, in relation to expeditions and the way that it's not, um, it, it isn't totally removed from the 16th century con uh, context. We can see the ways in which some theories, some uh, contemporary natural philosophy could be tested in, in an expedition setting. So there's a little bit that feeds into those 18th uh, and 20th century stories. So, um, by introducing Vespucci in the Spanish context, that gives us something where we're talking uh, about an institutional setting, a state setting, and actually that's rather different for the English context that I'll mostly focus on. Um, because for, for England, there were not state institutions. Um, there were not um, pilot majors. There was, an, there was a hope to create that role, but it, it, it wasn't successful. And there was therefore not that organised um, state-centred uh, regulation of the training of mariners, uh, the creation of cartographic resources. English initiatives in the 16th century, in the, in the second half of the century, were pursued on a much more individual level. They were typically under either aristocratic or merchant patronage. Um, and in that context, which wasn't totally removed from the state, there were some uh, uh, connections, but... Uh, under that more individual setting, a number of quite serious senior mathematicians went to sea to personally assess and reform navigational methods and instruments. And just to, I'm going to be focusing on Edward Wright, but just to mention, there are other, he's not the only one, there are others, none of them may be household names now, but in the period, they are seen as the sort of leading figures uh, in the English context. So one has a figure like Thomas Diggs, um, an often rather imperious gentleman mathematician who decries the errors of mariners in 1576. Um, 
and states he needs to, there needs to be a reformation of these erroneous practices that mariners themselves use. He finds that he is rebuffed by mariners. They say, well, whatever you say with your fine mathematics, our ways work. And so Diggs says, well, in that case, I'm going to see, and I will sort of prove you wrong. And he goes to sea for 14 weeks uh, and comes back vindicated, he says. You know, he's, he's, he demonstrated that his uh, detection of errors, his, his proof that he could come up with better methods uh, was, was absolutely the case. And this was the way to do it using mathematical methods. Unfortunately, we know nothing more than that. He just says he did this. He promises to provide a, a, a book on the improvement of navigation but it is, never, uh, it is never published. Other English mathematicians who had a, a significant role at sea um, would include Thomas Harriot. Uh, he is recruited as a university graduate by uh, Walter Raleigh, and Harriot assisted in the training of Raleigh's pilots in advance of the, the famous voyage to Virginia. And Harriet went on that ex expedition he spent 1584 to 5 in Virginia, um, but even though he had that direct uh, experience of the art, uh, his navigational treatise um, is lost. He, we know he wrote one, um, and the only text to come out of this um, expedition to Virginia is, um, is a, a narrative description that talks up the wonders of this newfound land um, to try to encourage uh, its promoters to get their uh, a reward from more people going there um, to colonise, to, to uh, set up a permanent settlement. So with Harriet, you have again a very promising setting, this uh, very able mathematician, um, but we don't know uh, the detail of what his experience was at sea, how he went about uh, his work. And that's why I'm coming on to Edward Wright, because... Uh, here is someone for whom we do, we do have evidence of detailed engagement uh, in a voyage. And we have evidence uh, with Wright, partly because not only does he go to sea, but he manages to write and publish uh, a text on, on navigation. That's a significant one. So it's, it's a book that was published in 1599 called um, Certain Errors in Navigation. And at the bottom of the title sequence, it says they have been detected and corrected uh, by, by Wright. And he gives a little outline. It's to do with the sea chart, errors in the sea chart and the use of the compass, the cross staff, um, tables of declination of the sun that you use to work out your latitude and of the fixed stars. Uh, if you want a, a bit more uh, on, on that, this is an alternate title page uh, issued with a, um, a different publisher where it's spelt out in a bit more detail just what these errors are that he is detecting and offering the means to uh, correct. So that's, that's a, a major text. It's recognised at the time as being uh, important and has, and has been recognised subsequently too. It came out in a second edition, 1610, dedicated to James I and VI's um, son, Prince Henry, um, and that was clearly going to be setting up right for some significant patronage. So who was this person, Edward Wright? Um, let's just give a very quick overview of his career. He comes from a sort of middling family. He goes to uh, Cambridge as a student, um, becomes a, a fellow, 
Gonville and Keyes College. Um, but he has an unusual career because he has diversions from that academic, from that academic career. He goes off to sea with the Earl of Cumberland in 1589, and we'll come back to that. But also he sets up a significant programme of observation in London in the, in the mid-1590s, so doing serious astronomical observation, positional astronomy, um, observing the sun particularly. Um, and he resigned his, his, um, his fellowship in, in Cambridge uh, and then carved out this um, innovative but precarious career in London. Um, he was an author, so writes on navigation. We saw certain errors, but also... Uh, writing on astronomy, on sundials, logarithms. He has a, a significant role in bringing that out into the, into the public sphere. He writes on magnetism. And also, he is a very active kind of technical consultant. He's involved in a project to bring water to London. Um, so he's very active and engaged, trying to make a, a kind of plausible, resilient career for himself in, in London. And as ways of making that work, he, he uh, appeals to highly placed patrons, such as Prince Henry, um, but is latterly also um, employed by the East India Company. So both um, aristocratic and royal patronage, but, but clearly some mercantile patronage as well. And clearly what I want to focus on is this, um, uh, this sort of adventure going off to sea with the Earl of Cumberland. And Cumberland, uh, a nobleman, a significant courtier, so this might seem rather sort of flamboyant thing to be doing. You know, this is a kind of cool guy to go to sea with um, if he can be a courtier um, with a, Elizabeth's champion. Um, and it's, you, you, it's very different from the kind of context of privateering you might imagine. What exactly is that? Well, that it's... Um, it's, it's um, it's a, an activity that is licensed by the Crown, which issues what are called letters of mark, um, and it allows the bearer of one of these letters to seize shipping as a, rep as a reprisal for claimed losses already sustained. And that gives a, what was often a very thin veneer of legality to what became very indiscriminate attacks on, on, uh, on, on, on shipping of uh, foreign nations. And, of course, those would then generate further retaliations and you had a continual cycle of, of, uh, of uh, reprisals um, going between different states uh, and uh, di different figures. And Cumberland um, becomes a, a major figure in this privateering uh, world. He, he has a series of almost annual uh, voyages with small fleets that he outfits himself. He creates his own ships. He rents ships from, from the Royal Navy uh, to, to uh, go off and to annoy particularly Spanish shipping, but others too. And it's on one of those voyages that uh, Wright is um, taken. It's a voyage to the Azores, 1589. And what Wright does is to provide a narrative uh, of, of this voyage, which is an appendix to his book, Certain Errors. And that narrative itself is not a mathematical account, but it's a, it's a tale of the prizes taken, uh, the notable military events such as the, the storming of a fort in, in the Azores. And if we want to see um, Wright at work as a mathematician, um, we can do that through his reformation of, of the sea chart. And the, the, the volume, Certain Errors, contains a, a large fold-out map which depicts the 1589 voyage, 
And this chart is its, its main uh, notable feature from the point of view of history of cartography is that it's a working Mercator chart. Uh, it's the first of its kind, the, the, the first printed, published one, based on that uh, projection that Gerard Mercator had, had published in 1569. And when Mercator published his, his new projection, it appeared in the form of a gigantic wall map. Many, many individual sheets that are printed. You probably can just about... This is, this is Africa here, South America there, Europe up there. British Isles are, are just there. It's a bit hard to make out the, the features of it. Um, but it's a new projection, um, and one that Mercator says is especially for the use of navigators, because its, its principal uh, feature is that for a constant bearing, a constant direction by the compass that is sailed by a ship, that appears on this new map projection as a straight line. And that is what Wright is producing, and he's having to do it from scratch. He knows it's possible, because he's seen Mercator's map, but Mercator gave no instructions. How do you make one of these? He says nothing about that at all. You simply get the graphic image of his, of his world map. And in writes certain errors, he provides the mathematical basis for creating this Mercator chart, and he shows it can be done through making his own chart of the voyage to the Azores. Now, that gives a real sense of novelty to the uh, cartography that Wright's providing, and so it might therefore seem a bit disappointing when one looks at the navigation of this 1589 voyage itself. If you, if you zoom in on this, there's a little bit. Um, hope you can see that there's some text here, exitus and reditus, with some little dotted lines. And if you can't read it, I hope that makes it a little bit uh, clearer. And if you color in the dotted lines, it shows you the way out and the way back. And so the way out looks like this. Uh, and if you think that if you think that's, looks rather straightforward, you know, sail down to Spain, take a sharp right, and go and hit the the Azores, then uh, the way back is also uh, in exactly the same format. That's called latitude sailing. You sail to the latitude of your destination, uh, and then you go along until you um, uh, arrive at or possibly strike your uh, destination. There are several points to make about this and the practice of navigation that it represents. First to say is that Wright was not responsible for this, this particular course. He would have been uh, an observer on this voyage, seeing what is going on, but not setting, setting the course, not in charge of the practicalities of navigation. And if you think it looks simple-minded as, as, as a way of sailing, actually it was quite advanced at the time, um, but this is not um, an exercise in the most advanced navigation. The reason that, these, that this course is, is chosen is entirely about the aims of the voyage, because the greatest ambition of the Earl of Cumberland's fleet was to intercept the Spanish treasure fleet on its way back from the Americas. And since the route of that fleet was from the Americas to the Azores, and then sail straight over to Spain, then in order to maximize your chances of success 
in this privateering voyage, what you had to do was to make sure that you were going to be in the way uh, of this fleet. Where exactly was it? You would sail in exactly that single latitude sailing between the mainland and the Azores, and if you didn't find anyone, then you would cruise around the Azores uh, in the hope of gathering intelligence or stumbling on a, a profitable prey to, to, try and, uh, to try and attack. So this is not about um, exercising maximum navigational skill. It's about trying to make sure that you can be a successful privateer. Nevertheless, Wright's exposure to the conditions of navigation at sea was absolutely key to the series of reformations that he provided in his Certain Errors uh, navigational text. But that text gives us very little sense of how Wright pursued his mathematical agenda on board ship itself. However, luckily, we have another opportunity to witness Wright's experimental and investigative approach at sea. Because although, if you consult standard secondary sources, they will confidently say that Wright went to sea in 1589 and never returned there after the 1589 voyage, actually, he did go back to sea. Uh, he went back to the Azores with another voyage of, with the Earl of Cumberland four years later in 1593. And before looking at the remarkable evidence that survives from that second voyage that Wright took part in, it's worth reflecting on the experience that Wright was committing to. Because his voyage in 1589 had been absolutely no summer holiday of, you know, um, sunny days in the Azores. Uh, this was a, it was a very serious and uh, risky business to get in, involved in. On that voyage of 89, the fleet ran out of water. Uh, it ran out of anything else to drink too. And it wasn't until they were caught in storms near the coast of, of Ireland, um, you can see the little loop that they, they performed there, um, where they were they, they had the, the, the misfortune to be in a storm, but the fortune to be in a, a hailstorm. And everyone collected hailstones to, to, to melt them for, for the water because they were that desperate. So Wright was under no illusions about what going to sea meant in this period. Um, he, he writes of that particular experience in every corner of the ship were heard the lamentable cries of sick and wounded men sounding woefully in our ears crying out and pitifully complaining for want of drink, being ready to die, yea, many dying for lack thereof. So as by reason of this great extremity, we lost many more men than we had done all the voyage before. This is, this is, this is not something that you enter into with a skip in your step if you've done it once already. Uh, and he continued to reflect in that way that when you went to sea, you were banishing yourself from your nearest friends and native country, you're in a wooden prison, um, always within one span of present death. So he, he's absolutely doing this, knowing what he's going into, and there therefore has to be significant benefit to be possibly um, persuaded to go back to sea. So what do we know about this second voyage that, that he goes off to uh, in 1593? Well, the evidence for it is recorded in a volume of uh, rights, uh, a manuscript volume of rights at Trinity College in Dublin. And in it, he, there is a, a narrative by Wright himself 
and additional material, additional narrative material from one of the fleet's captains. But the most telling section for our purposes today is a tabulated traverse book or log. Uh, there's the, it's the two sheets, that, that's two images stuck together from, from it's too tightly bound to take it, to take it as a, uh, a single spread, but it is in the form of a, a, a single spread. Um, and this double spread and this tabular form contains a great deal of information um, from June to September 1593. It's in the format that was just being established by leading contemporary navigators such as uh, John Davis. And when we dive into it a little bit further, you can see up at the top um, there is August, so you get a column of dates. Then beside that you have place and course. Um, so if you can see land, you make a note of, 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 of where you are in relation to the land, um, but then you write down your course when you're out at sea, so you can see northeast by north uh, uh, over, over here. The number of leagues that, that you sail on any one bearing. There are some scattered observations of the variation of the compass. We'll come, we'll come back to that. Uh, and then there's the, the height of the pole, the latitude that, that is being instrumentally uh, observed. And then the last one is the direction of, of the wind. So you're tabulating all that information that gives you the basis for plotting your voyage uh, on, a, on, on, on a map. And you can see this is not a kind of neatly polished account. These are rough notes with errors and emendations and even alterations in the format of information being recorded. And most strikingly, I would say, the level of detail that appears uh, on this table increases towards the end of the voyage, particularly in recording the latitude. So we have the, the height of the pole column here, 39 degrees, 48 minutes is being written down there. If we move on, this is the, the latitude column here. And you'll see, in addition to numbers, there are some little symbols. There's a little funny, is that a sword? Is it a cross? There's a little star up here, another star down here, another cross. If you can't see that well enough, you can go into extreme detail, possibly excessive detail. And I guess so you can see there's a little cross here and a little star uh, up there. That gives us something to think about what's going on there. Well, we get some further prompting, some further stimulus. Um, here's Further on in, in this log of the voyage, we have some other symbols down in this column. Let's go in a bit closer. This time we've got a little ring here and a circle with a dot, another little ring with an extra one on top, and then a little, is that a little sun with the rays of the sun streaming out? Well, what we're seeing, I think, is this one here, that one there, um, all the way back to there, when we look at this, what I think we're seeing is right recording the instruments that are being used to make the measurements. So that's what were then standard instruments, the cross staff in, in, in that cross form, and the circle of the mariner's astrolabe. But what is really intriguing and is worth picking out in terms of right um, sort of innovating and experimenting here is that it's not just those familiar shapes that appear in his log. So if we, if we move on, um, again, we have these latitude observations. And if we go in closer, you'll see we've got a cross here. So I'm saying that's a cross staff being used to measure the height of the sun. 
Here's the mariner's astrolabe being used to measure the sun. But at nighttime, a star is being observed with something else, a bit like an anchor upside down. And what is extraordinary here is that that is not, um, at the time, that isn't a recognised instrumental form. But in the second edition uh, of Wright's book, right on the title page, here's an instrument here, which is shown in the book as, he calls it his C quadrant. That is published in 1610, but Wright seems to be using it in 1593. Uh, so that gives a sense that in this 1593 voyage, Wright is, is um, trialling a new instrument at sea and that he is deliberately comparing the performance of different instruments. And for such an early date, it's remarkable to have such, such sort of raw uh, evidence for both innovation and testing in the practice of this new mathematical form of navigation. And Wright, who says that he has already drafted his book before he goes off on this 1593 voyage, it appears then um, that he is taking things to sea in order to test, to trial, uh, and to put improvements into practice uh, under his noble patron. So that's novelty in both instruments and cartography as a way of rendering expeditions mathematical. But just to come at the end, uh, towards the end now, I want to just say a little bit about the testing of theory um, that, that, that I mentioned right at the start. In contemporary 16th century terms, what that means is looking at the way that mathematical practices can be brought to bear on what was called philosophy or natural philosophy. And so I'm going to end with looking at the case of magnetism and the way that there is a whole philosophy of magnetism that is, that is being brought to bear here. And what I, I hope that will show is that beyond these mathematical techniques, there are some larger questions at stake they are not being promoted as the sole purpose of voyages, but for the mathematicians on the voyages, there's an opportunity to be investigating some large-scale uh, new ideas. And so the issue at stake here um, appears in navigator's terms as what is called compass variation. So on, on Wright's title page, he talks about the second error to correct is the error of a whole point of the compass and more many times by neglecting the variation of the compass. So what is that variation of the compass? Uh, in, a, in, in a little manual by a compass maker from 1581, Robert Norman, he explains this compass variation as the difference between true north, the line showing the pole, and magnetic north, the line respective, the line that the magnetic compass actually points towards. And the difference between them is compass variation. And Norman shows that you, if this is true north, going to the geographical North Pole, then you will have true east and true west, but there will be a false east and a false west given, given by the compass. So you have to be aware of that if you want to plot yourself correctly uh, on a map. How to account for this phenomenon of compass variation? Well, there were 
a lot of different discussions and solutions proposed. One of the most disseminated ones was again by Gerard Mercator. This is a, an, an inset um, map of his showing the North Pole here. This, there's the north of Scandinavia. This is Russia here um, with these um, uh, hypothesized lands around the North Pole. Mercator says you can explain this strange variation of the compass, the fact that it doesn't point to true north necessarily, by there being a magnetic pole, and that's this thing in the sea over here. So if you are, if you are here, your compass will point to true north because it goes through the geographical pole to this magnetic pole. But if you're over here, your needle will point that way and not this way. So here's an explanation, a global explanation of how... Uh, this, this phenomenon comes, comes to be. Mercator um, seems to recognise that there are challenges to this, in addition to, the, oops, in addition to this magnetic mountain that he has just here. There's another point just there where he says, well, that's where it seems to be, um, this magnetic pole from other observations. Maybe not all the observations are entirely uh, harmonious. And the big... Um, uh, challenge that comes is from more observations that make it harder and harder to see that Mercator's theory can be right, that there's a single pole that everything will point towards. And the possibility of a, a regular global mathematical theory of this compass variation is challenged by uh, increasing numbers of skilled observers reporting observations of this variation. That lack of regularity was then um, put to use, put to intellectual work by uh, a contemporary natural philosopher. So William Gilbert, his 1600 book, De, De Magneti, comes up with an, a novel way of accounting for this variation because Gilbert says the whole earth is a great magnet. And therefore, by experimenting with little spherical magnets, you can see how the behaviour of the whole earth should be. And Gilbert says... If you imagine a continent like this, because the Earth is magnetic itself, little needles will point towards there. They won't point to the true pole. They will be deflected towards great land masses. So Gilbert has an idea of how to explain the apparent irregularity um, of this compass variation. That is something that Wright was extremely familiar with. Um, Wright has the very unusual role of writing a, a preface to Gilbert's book. It's, there are contemporary sort of gossipy comments that Wright wrote parts of Gilbert's work that were too mathematically demanding for Gilbert to manage by himself. Uh, so he was definitely closely in, involved in this. He knew about Gilbert's work. And what is interesting um, with Wright is that he tries to put put um, the collection of this data into a form that you can see, you can test whether Gilbert's ideas are correct. So he shows um, this variation of the compass on the chart to the Azores, 1589. Um, there's a little detail there um, with two particular observations at sea on those dotted lines of the, of, of the way out and, and the return. And for Gilbert's point of view, this is, this is encouraging. So this is near um, the, the coast of, of, of Spain and, uh, um, and Portugal, or rather, yes, it is, yeah. And it says it's um, an easterly 
variation. So the needle is pointing towards the landmass. Wright takes this much, much further. Um, in 1610, he revises his book, and he has a whole world map on the Mercator projection. And when you zoom into that, um, you see that there are dotted around in the sea. There's, there's Britain up here, Spain, the Azores there. There are little marks in, in the Atlantic. Um, and he says that the numbers scatteringly dispersed here and there are observations of this variation. The letters east and west show which way the needles point, um, away from true north, but he also gives you the witnesses for this. So if it says ED, it's an easterly variation observed by John Davis. Uh, so you, you get a list of reliable navigators who can show you uh, exactly what the variation is at different parts uh, of, of the world. So here's, here's the Azores with some observation that there's one which is zero east there from Hall. As you go across the Atlantic, very um, uh, reassuringly for Gilbert, the variation turns westward, pointing towards the landmass of, of North America. So that seems quite promising. Unfortunately, in the South Atlantic, when you accumulate the observations, um, so here's Africa and uh, Brazil, they remain eastwards as you get towards the South American coast. So Gilbert's rule, this philosophical explanation, doesn't work for the South Atlantic. And because Wright is so involved in Gilbert's work, he absolutely knew about this. He does not make um, a, a large explicit comment on this. This, this falsifies Dr. Gilbert's rule. Um, but it's, it's inconceivable that he wasn't aware of the implications of drawing up a map like this and populating the world with these observations of skilled mariners. So it's not explicitly stated, but I think we can be very confident that, Gilbert, uh, that, that, that Gilbert's ideas were being challenged, ultimately, as Wright accumulated more observations. So, with trusted observers, um, any expedition could therefore provide data. Uh, and although I've used 16th century terms uh, to, to present the understanding of mathematics and Wright's uh, endeavours here, to lapse into anachronism for a final comment, what we're seeing is, a, is what you might think of as a much more characteristically modern endeavour here. This is a kind of crowdsourcing in order to provide the data for, um, for looking at global theories of the earth and magnetism. And... That, that means that you do have to have a question. How, can you trust the observations of these navigators? But that's a very modern question, and it's one that I think Wright and others at the time are trying to grapple with. So they're doing what we see as this modern form of mathematics, but they are taking it to um, make contact with, to, uh, to challenge aspects of contemporary philosophy. So there is, even if not in the explicit aims of the voyagers, there is a, a, a will and a wish to tackle theoretical questions in these mathematical expeditions. Thank you. Um, on the compass variation point, I mean, how would you know, how would they know what, what true north uh, was? 
so the, 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 there are different ways of doing it. Um, they, some people make um, uh, special compasses that, that, um, that don't just have a compass card that, with a needle underneath it, which the, that's normal form in a ship. So all you see is this rotating compass card. So there are some bare needle compasses that are made and you can take an observation in the morning and in, before noon and one afternoon and then you can get your north line, that's easiest uh, on, on land. There are other ways of doing it by where the sun rises, the sun's amplitude, um, where it rises or sets, because you can work that out from tables where it should be, uh, and then you can establish the difference between true north and, and what the compass itself is pointing at. So there are a number of ways for both land observations and sea observations. But it's not necessarily simple, you know, you're at sea, you're on this moving platform. Uh, in, in Wright's um, notes, this is not something that happens every day. You know, that there are some observations of the variation, um, but I think it was probably quite hard to do, certainly in 1589. He looks like he's got quite precise um, observations when they're printed, but in the same manuscript, there are the, the manuscript notes um, from his 89 observations, and you get to a sort of seemingly precise value by averaging over several different ones, which are all to sort of half a point of the compass or something like that, so they can be quite crudely done, it seems. Thank you. Uh, you mentioned at one point that they were, you had to uh, avoid the Spanish fleet uh, not uh, avoid it. You want to encounter it. You want to. Yes, I mean, I mean, was you want there, to get in its way. I see. So there was. It was not uh, in danger of being, uh, you know, a piracy or anything like that. It's well, you know, it it, it isn't. It, it isn't being a pirate because it is legally sanctioned doing do, doing this. But it's a uh, you know, as I say, it can be a rather thin veneer of legality as as, as, as to what is going on because certainly on a number of these voyages. Um, other ships are, are, are seized, sent back to England, and their uh, cargo is confiscated. And then later on, you have court cases that come through because it was some, it was a Dutch ship, and their and, and their owner makes a claim against the English Admiralty. So they say, flag under the British flag, yeah. Or the well, the, the, and, this one was. Yeah, yes. and, and at that point, the English flag, yes, yeah. Uh, 